Good morning again. You know, yesterday I was watching football, and if you don't uh, know, I really enjoy watching football. It's hard sometimes because I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. Uh, but they won last night, so this morning's sermon is going to be way more hopeful. Uh, so we're good uh, on that front. Uh, but, you know, one of the frustrating things about watching football is when I'm watching football at home and I try not to yell at the TV, but I'm watching a guy who is paid way more money than I am, millions of dollars potentially, um, and then he does something wrong that I could have done. Okay, the perfect example of this is catching a ball. Okay, so real quick, I'm going to teach you how to catch a ball, okay? Uh, a football. If you don't know, now you'll know. You can teach your kids or grandkids or whatever, okay? Just want you to put two hands up in the air just like this, okay? Make an L like this, but then you can put, those are the two important fingers, okay? Here we go. It goes like this. We're going to put our thumbs together, and we're going to put our pointer fingers together, okay? This is the diamond, okay? Now, what do you think goes into the diamond? The ball, Okay, the ball. So there you go. You make the diamond, the ball goes in. You know, you watch TV, and then a guy's trying to catch it like this. Nope. Nope. The ball, too big. Keep your fingers together. Keep the diamond. You're going to catch the ball. Okay? Actually, that, that's not exactly true. There's some other things that go with that, but there's something that you have to do first. You could do this all day long, but it doesn't matter if you don't do the most important thing. Do you know what the most important thing is in order to catch a ball? You hear it in baseball, golf, and football. Keep your eye on the ball. Okay, so you're going to make your diamond, and you're going to see the ball in. Okay, see the ball in. You catch the ball, keep the diamond, but you're going to have to look at the ball. And what happens, because I watch it all the time, is that he goes to catch the ball, makes his nice pretty diamond, but then he's like, oh, where am I going? And then instead of catching the ball, it hits him in the head, it goes to the ground, it's a disaster. He gets distracted. He does. He keeps, gets his focus off the ball. He goes, that guy's going to tackle me, and he's way much bigger. Or, ooh, the end zone's over there. I'm going to score. And then their focus is shifted. Their priority's in the wrong place. They forgot to do the most important thing, the primary thing. Keep your eye on the ball. I'm telling you, I could do that. I'd probably be looking at the big guy, too. You know, I don't. Maybe you've been there before, and maybe it's not catching, catching a football, uh, but maybe you've realized you're in the middle of something and you forgot that most important step. Or maybe you didn't even read the instruction because they can't really be that important, and then you're left with that one piece. Um, maybe someone's told you some things that you thought were true, and then you figured out, well, th- that wasn't true at all. Maybe you did something, you put that proverbial cart before the horse, and now you're dealing with some fallout from there. Not only can that be uh, quite frustrating, but the consequences can start becoming quite devastating, depending on what circumstances we're talking about. You know, catching a ball, I really need to stop yelling at the TV because it's just a game. (laughs) It's not that important. It's just a game. But then... If we start talking about some other things and we, and we see these concepts start showing up in our daily lives, whether that be our homes or our jobs or relationships, man, now if we mess up some of the priorities, if we mess up some of the order, if we miss the main, most important first thing, then we could be talking about some trouble. So this morning we're going to open up the book of Colossians. 
Because as we open up the book of Colossians, and if you read through it, which we won't do this morning, but they seem to be in a similar situation. We find out in the first few verses of chapter 1 that a man named Epaphras comes to Paul, and Paul's in prison in Rome, and Epaphras starts telling him about some things that are happening over at his church, the Colossian church. And he starts telling Paul that, Paul, they're doing great, they're loving people and stuff, but there's, I'm concerned because there's some teaching that's coming in and it doesn't sound right, Paul. And he starts describing some problems. And, and especially if you read chapter 2, you start to see uh, some of the, the issues that Paul has to address. Um, it, it seemed like there were some people that were trying to uh, deny that Jesus was actually human. And there, there were some other teachers around that denied that Jesus was actually God. And then there seemed to be some people in the church that kind of had their own idea of what religion should be. And they started to mix all of these things together. They're like, well, yeah, like you're the church of Jesus and everything. But, you know, we're going to take some of these Jewish practices and we're going to take some of this Greek philosophy. And we're going to take some of some of these uh, Greek pagan rituals and stuff. And we're going to like meld them all together in this synchristic thing. And, and we're going to that's what you really need to be doing in the church. And then the problem just kept compounding because it seemed like some people were promoting this um, asceticism or this um, like a works-based uh, religion. And, and then there were even other people that were worshiping angels or, or saying that Jesus was an angel. It's hard to pinpoint what the one thing was because there were so many things that seemed to come up in this letter. And so we're not really going to address those things per se. But what we're going to do is look at Paul's answer. And what Paul's answer is, because I'm sure it was a confusing time for sincere new believers that were trying to do the right thing and trying to follow uh, this new thing called Christianity. They had all these conflicted messages. And so what Paul does is he gives us the main thing. He gives us what the church should have kept their eyes on. And I think they were distracted by this teaching over here, and they were distracted by this thing over here, and they might have even had some things right, but they were missing the primary, the first important thing, and that's what Paul does. And Paul says, here's the gospel, and here's what you need to know about Jesus and how to be right with God. And as I think about it, I don't know if there's a more important book for us to look at today. Because as I look at other churches and I look at Christian circles and what, what's kind of going on out there, to be honest, I'm a little concerned. I'm concerned about the purity of the gospel. I'm concerned about false teaching creeping in. I'm concerned about uh, misaligned priorities and, and, and a number of probably other things. And really it's kind of the same trap that the first century church was prey to falling into. And I think we're seeing it in many ways today. And so we could spend the rest of the morning talking about my concerns about other churches and about what everyone else is doing wrong. That's actually kind of easy, and it's not our job. And so what we need to do this morning is look introspectively. We need to look at our church and maybe more importantly us as individuals, and we need to ask ourselves, well, why do I come to church? Do I know the gospel? What role does faith play in my life? God pleased with our worship, my worship. But most importantly, how do I answer the question that all the other questions hinge on? 
the keep your eye on the ball question. And that is, who is Jesus? Who is he? You know, this is the question that Jesus asked Peter. These people say this and these people say this. Yeah, I got that, Peter, but who do you say that I am? You know, one of my favorite Tozer quotes is what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Say that often. There's actually some more profound words that come immediately after that in the knowledge of the holy. He says this, the history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. He says, worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be. So in the next few moments, that's what we're going to open up Scripture to find out. I want you to be the judge. Let's answer the question, who is so we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're starting in verse 15. Who is he? He is the image. I got it. If you're wondering what's going on back there. You're good. Who is he? He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether it thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In this verse, these verses, there's several depictions of Christ. And it's clear, Jesus is God. He's described as the image of the invisible God. Paul's refuting this idea that Jesus is some sort of created being or angel. No, when you look at Jesus, Jesus says, you see the Father. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. But before we move from that, I just want you to pause for a moment and and consider the weight and the magnitude of what that ought to mean for us. You know, our minds can't hope to comprehend who God is. God is spirit. He is infinite. He is outside of our universe. He is outside of our time. He is outside of our space. How in the world is my finite mind supposed to grasp who God is? Well, we're never going to get that all. But you know what God did? He became man. In the person of Jesus. As one person has put it, he became God in focus. Through Jesus, we now can see God in human terms. We can see how God talks and walks. We know how God will respond to hurt and to pain and to struggle and to trials and temptations because Jesus is God. We would have no hope of knowing God apart from Christ. 
condescending to us, becoming a human. Paul goes on to say he is the firstborn of all creation. Well, see, he was born. He must be created. No, he can't be God and created. When Paul says he is the firstborn of creation, it's actually God's term. He's not talking about Jesus being firstborn as in order of sequence or created. It's easiest to think of this concept in terms of uh, the first gen- what the first century church would have thought in terms of rights, honor, status, inheritance. Those all go to the firstborn. And you see in the Old Testament and the New Testament, firstborn doesn't always have to be the first one who was born. It's a prophetic psalm, Psalm 89, verse 27. God says this about David, And I will make him the firstborn. And he's pointing through to Christ, the highest of the kings of the earth. David wasn't the firstborn. He was the lastborn, the little one, the runt that nobody cared about. But God said, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And points forward to the day that Christ would be the firstborn of both creation. And we will see that. And so here we see that everything, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So when God says, and Paul describes Jesus as the firstborn, he's saying, all of it is yours. All the rights, honor, authority, glory, blessing, and honor, it's yours. There's no question what Paul's trying to get across and refuse. Jesus is God. And so what does that have to do with us? Well, if we think about it for a second... I think it has everything to do with us. And it goes back to that phrase that we were just exploring, the firstborn of all creation. He is the firstborn of all creation. And if God has given him everything and he has bestowed all authority and honor and glory and power to his son, Jesus, my fear is that we tend to forget that. We may know that in our head and we don't really resound with the truth because the truth is, is is if that's true if Jesus is the firstborn of all creation and everything is for him and in him what that means is Jesus demands our worship for no other reason than for who he is because he is God we are called to worship Christ just for that. The creator, the sustainer, the sustainer, the one who gives us breath and life, the one who keeps us and holds us right now, who is over all and through all and in all, all wisdom and power and strength and honor and glory and the spirit of God rests in Christ and in God. And the only appropriate response is worship. And that's what we heard. Is he worthy? Is He worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is He worthy of this? He is. So before we move off this point, I just want to humbly ask you, because it's me too, a couple questions about this. How often have you worshipped Christ purely because of who He is? Not because of what He has done for you, 
Not because of what you hope He will do for you, but simply because He is God. Because He is worthy. I wonder, how do you start your day? Do you start your day by thanking God for giving you another one? By thanking God for giving Him the breath that you breathe, the life that He continues to give you, just the opportunity to be alive another day to worship Him as God. What would it look like for you to put Christ before all things, knowing that everything is His? We could and we probably should spend the rest of our time just considering that. And maybe even confessing a little bit, repenting over the times we've neglected God for who He is and Jesus for who He is, the Creator, the Sustainer, the One who is deserving of our glory, blessing, and honor. But we'll have to leave it there because there's more here in this passage. Verse 18 begins, And He is the head of the body, the church. Who is He? He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the head of the church. And I think we kind of naturally nod our heads like we get it. Okay. Um, I've been in church for a while. Uh, I know the teachings. I've heard Romans, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians. We're all individuals. All the individuals make up the body. We're all supposed to work together. When we do everything right, we're functioning as long as we keep Christ as the head. Yeah. Got that. Jesus is in charge of the church. And that's good. I'm glad we're on the same page. Um, the, the rest of verse 18 kind of describes uh, why he is the head of the church. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And, and what Paul is saying is Christ's resurrection secured salvation for the church. His resurrection bought his bride. And so we understand that, and that's why Jesus is in charge of the church. But here's my fear. My fear is that we get that, and we understand that in theory up here, but we, always, we don't always follow that in practice. And so this is what I mean. We can, we can kind of see where we're at by answering just one question. Why do you come to church? Now, I can tell you uh, a, a few things that, that I've heard. Why, why do people go to church? Well, I go to church uh, to become a better person, uh, to be a better, b- better husband or, or, or wife or, or parent. Uh, you know, some people come to church because, man, it's a place to get fellowship and encouragement and prayer. Uh, some people come to church because, hey, they have a, a great children's program and their building is awesome. And they've got the best slides for the kids and, and all of that. Uh, some people go to church because, man, the speaker is awesome. This year is awesome. He's great, and he's just so he hits so relevant, and all this and these things. And some people go to go to church because man, the worship is just powerful. You know, other people will talk about going to church, and man, when they go to church, they've got the lights and the production and the music, and you can just feel it. And then some people go to church because they don't have the lights and the production, and you can't really feel it. You know, some people go to church because their coffee is the best in town. And, man, they serve free donuts on Sunday. Like, I think we should look into that, actually. (laughs) 
You know, but and I'm not saying any of those things are wrong or right. And some of those things are definitely good. And they should be reason reasons why you choose a church. But can you guess the reason that you should go to church? The first reason. Jesus. Jesus. To worship Christ, who is our head. So what does it mean for our church? You can keep your leadership honest. What does it mean for the church to put Christ first? I mean, a few things, many things, but here's a few. It means we align our priorities around Christ. I absolutely want good coffee. But I will stick with Folgers as long as we preach Christ. And I will not go to the church that serves great coffee if they do not preach Christ, more importantly. I absolutely want our music to be great. And this morning, loving it. Love it. Absolutely want it to be great. And I never want there to be a sound problem, ever. I want our building to look great. But we will not put any of that ahead of Christ or His mission. I absolutely want our teaching to be relevant and engaging and appealing, but we cannot and we will not sacrifice the truth to cater to anyone who is outside of Christ. You know, to put Christ first in the church means we will focus our mission on His mission. I absolutely want our church to grow exponentially in 2019. But I do not, and we will not, Have you heard it before? Sacrifice the preaching of Christ and Him crucified to gain people. Can't do it. We will not let a bigger budget or bigger buildings or bigger programs be the reason that we want to grow. We want to grow, and I'm all for a bigger building and a bigger budget, but we do it because we want people to know Christ first. I absolutely want our giving to increase in 2019. Not because I want a bigger salary, but only to the extent that we are better able to accomplish Christ's mission here locally and in the world. Putting Christ first in church means our motivation is found in Him and not us. I think it's a lofty goal. We ought to be striving to be better men and women, and husbands, and wives, and fathers, and mothers, and children, and teenagers. Ought to be doing that. But only to the extent that we understand, without Christ first, you're hopeless. I want great children's programs, and fun activities, and family involvement. But I want it centered on knowing Christ deeper, and not just some arbitrary feeling that we're doing better, or we look better than the guy down the road. It's got to be Christ first. And a church that is Christ first means we come to serve and not to be served. We recognize those truths that as part of the body we are needed. And beyond that, Christ has gifted you for the edification of the saints and the building up of the body of whose head is Christ. And I am happy to say And I can say with confidence 
that our elders and our deacons were on the same page here. They're committing to keeping Christ first. And if you think they're not, you call attention to it. Call the meeting. Have it out. Let's work it. And if there's a time where no one's listening and no one's preaching Christ, leave. Go find a church that will preach Christ first. But stay for a little bit longer so we can finish. All right, the rest of verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. It's kind of a strange phrase, firstborn from the dead. We already kind of briefly described what it means for the universal church. Christ, through his death, bought his bride. But it also has implications for the individual. You know, Jesus certainly wasn't the first one to die. And he wasn't even the first one to be resurrected. He himself resurrected several people in his earthly ministry. But remember what we said. It's not necessarily the first in line or sequence. It's about status and rights and what has been bestowed on him. And what we learn is that in Christ's resurrection, he was the first to be resurrected to eternal life. He brings in and ushers in a new era and a new creation in the church. Through His resurrection, He opened the path. And He is our prototype for our future resurrection. We could look at Philippians 2, where we see Christ is humbled, He's obedient, He goes to the cross. Well, what's the result? Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee, every individual, everywhere should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus being firstborn from the dead secures our salvation, but it has already been granted to Him through the Father. It has been accomplished through the work of the cross. And so Paul continues to flesh that out and he uses this word reconciliation that we talked about earlier in communion. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. This is the Gospel. This is what Paul is saying. Keep in focus and don't lose sight of. Christ is the God-man who died for us, that His blood is sufficient for our salvation and the only way to be reconciled to Him and to be at peace with God. And I hope you start to see the significance here because he, he adds to it. He adds on in the next two verses. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What does that mean for the individual? It means you have been rescued. You have been set free because Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. We have confidence in our future resurrection. We are free to obey. We are free to serve. He has given us confidence knowing that it has already been done. But if some of you have been reading ahead, you're like, but wait a minute, there's an if that's coming next. So real quick, verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith. 
stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You were once alienated in hostile mind. You were once doing evil deeds, but Christ has reconciled you. If you continue in the faith, you may have a problem if this is conditional. Because I can tell you right now, if my salvation or security rests in me continuing in the faith, man, I'm in trouble. And I don't want to burst your bubble, but you are too. If you're resting in your own strength, just continue in the faith, you've got a problem. So what does Paul mean? I don't think Paul is questioning whether or not this is happening. He's saying if you have been reconciled at that day, you will continue in the faith. If you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. And here's why I know it's not a conditional. This is the next phrase. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Do you know what the hope of the gospel is? It's not contingent on you or me. So if I stand in the hope of the gospel, I will persevere. I will be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. Because, working backwards, Christ has reconciled us through His blood. Not only if will we continue in the faith if we remember to keep Christ first. Just realize, hey, this is the best way to live. I can't give you all the answers tonight, today, this morning. But, you know, you want to know God's will for your life? You know where it starts? Keep Jesus first. You know, keys to a good marriage? Keys to being a better husband or wife? You know where it starts? Keeping Jesus first. You want to know the key to good parenting? You know where it starts? Keeping Jesus first. You got some problem? Got some addiction? Got some sin issue? You know where it, where it starts to get better? You put Jesus first. It's more than that. Okay, you, you, there's going to be some things that you need to do. But if you don't keep Jesus first, trying to fix all this over here, really kind of hopeless. You keep Jesus first, that's how we're going to find freedom in these things. This is where we're going to find purpose in what God has for us. There will be other things involved for sure. But let's not forget to keep our priorities in order. The priority is keep Jesus first. So as we end, what does it mean, what does it look like to keep Jesus first in everything? Knowing that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, I'm going to strive to know Him for who He is. Know Him for who He is. The only way to accomplish this is spend time in His Word. And prayer. He is the firstborn of creation. He is the creator. How am I supposed to know him? Well, he has revealed himself to you. How did he do that? Through his word. Know him for who he is. How do I know that he's the creator, the standard, the life giver? His word. Keeping Jesus first. I'm going to know him for who he is. I'm going to spend time in word and prayer. Knowing that he is the head of the church. I'm going to serve Him with all that I have. You know, being the head, this doesn't mean obey. It's not just about, oh, when I come to church, I need to do what Jesus says. And you're missing the thing there. Jesus is the head of the church. I'm going to serve Him with all I've got. 
Because knowing, why is Jesus the head? Because he gave himself for her. Because he showed us what sacrificial love is. And so my return to him is I will serve him with everything. I will give him my love in return. I will use the gifts that he has given me in his service. And that also includes outside of this building. He is the head of the church, so I will serve him with all that I am. And knowing that he is the firstborn from the dead, I will worship him for what he's done. I will remember what he has saved me from. I will strive to walk in the new life that he has for me because I know it's so much better than being alienated and hostile mind doing evil deeds. This is what it means to keep Christ first. What would it mean for you to keep Christ first in 2019? What would it mean for our church to keep Christ first in 2019? I'm excited to see as we enter a new year. Let's pray together that we will continue to keep Christ first. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I'm thankful. I'm thankful that this is not about us or me or what we can do. It's about what you have already done and accomplished through your Son. I pray you would help us just rest in that truth. What you have given for us, what you have done for us, that we will strive to know you, just to know you, just to know who you are. That we would, that we would look to serve you with everything that we have. And that we would remember, that we wouldn't forget, that we would continue to praise and worship you for what you've done. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.